Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome. This is Catherine Miller, the host of Dialogue on Divorce. I'm a collaborative family lawyer and mediator. I've got an office based in Westchester and in New York City. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce in New York. And today, I'm sitting here with Don Cardi, an experienced lawyer and very experienced lawyer for children and divorce. And we're going to talk about children and divorce. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Catherine. I'm so happy to be here. I've always enjoyed representing children in any forum, especially in divorce. I think it's really important about how you represent them. So before we start to talk about that, why don't you just give us a little information about your background and how you started working with children? I have a law firm. One of our practice areas is family and matrimonial law. After years of experience in the field, as well as experience working with psychologists and other experts, I was appointed to a panel in the first department. And when there is a custody dispute, judges and or parties agree as to who will represent the children. And that's how I became involved in representing children. So that's a lot of information. And to the uninitiated, it can be really surprising to hear that children in divorce have a lawyer of their own. Yes, it does surprise people. They don't get a lawyer right from the very beginning. Courts are loath to put children in the midst of litigation. But if, in fact, the parents can't agree on how custody and access should occur, then they will bring in a lawyer to represent the children's interests because sometimes the children's interest is different from the parents' interest. So that's where I would come in. Again, let's just sort that out because a court needs to make a decision sometimes, sadly. The parents are unable to make a decision about what we call custody, right? Mm-hmm. And that really breaks down into two pieces, right? Which is decision-making and time-sharing. Correct. Right? And so oftentimes people just can't agree about how they're going to share time. And that's regular time, like just regular weeks and weekends and special time, so holidays and vacations and so on and so forth. That's Correct. And so I think we often think about the decision-making. I mean, it's not that no one knows that there are custody arguments and custody trials and judges are sometimes called upon to make decisions about the lives of children. And I think we often think about this idea of psychologists or psychiatrists or, you know, people who are going to evaluate the children. And I don't think that's surprising for people. And on this program, we've talked about and with some people who do that work at times. So how does the lawyer for the children interact with a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist? And how does your voice as the lawyer for the children differ or not differ from the voice of the mental health professional? Well, we are supposed to act as lawyers. And if the court assigns me as a lawyer for the child, then I have certain rules and regulations and guidelines that I have to follow in regard to Interestingly enough, following the will or position of my client who is a child. 
If I'm a guardian ad litem, it means that usually the child is too young to be considered a child who can make those decisions and have an opinion. And then I get to have my opinion becomes the opinion for the child. Now, how we interact with forensic psychology. Oh, wait, wait. Sure. I just want to clarify that because I think what you're saying, if you have a really young child, because listeners might be thinking, well, if you have a three-year-old, you know, and they say, well, I want this, do you have to represent <laughs> that interest of the court? When they're very young, you can substitute your view of what's best for that child for the child's own voice. But there comes a point when the child reaches a certain age where their own opinion about what should happen is what it is that you then represent. That's correct. And what age is that? There's no clear cut age. I mean, some judges will appoint me as a lawyer for the children as young as six, others not. So it really depends the way the judge views children, a particular child in the case. There's no strict rule. Okay. All right. Now I'm ready to go on. So in terms of interacting with the forensics, your listeners may be surprised that we are not entitled to have any interaction with the forensic psychiatrist or psychologist or social worker during the pendency of the forensic evaluation, except often judges will ask me to schedule things. So we do have input, however, into who the forensic will be because judges will ask us and the litigants, attorneys, who they would like to be the forensic person on the case. So from a panel of potential forensic evaluators, the judge would confer with not only you as the attorney for the child or the children, but also with the attorneys for the parents. That's correct. Okay. During the time that the forensic is evaluating the family and the children, the various situations, you're not allowed to have substantive conversations with that person. That's correct. Nor are the parties, nor are their attorneys allowed to have any substantive conversations. I will tell you, though, as an aside, that I often am instrumental in getting children into therapy during the pendency of a litigation if I think that those children need some support and I am able to interact on a regular basis with their therapists if that occurs. Well, that's interesting. This is Catherine Miller, the host of Dialogue on Divorce. This is WBOX 1460 AM and WBOX.com. We're also broadcasting as a podcast on my website, which is westchesterfamilylaw.com and on iTunes. And I'm talking with Don Cardi about the role of the lawyer for the children today and the interaction between your role as the lawyer for the children and the therapist for the children. So it sounds like the reason for that is that you can talk to the therapist. Is that part of how you figure out what the children want, what their voice is? I mean, often that's one area and an important area. And also children are often in these highly litigated cases are distressed because they're being pulled back and forth by parents and family. And so it's hard for the children to even know what it is that they want. And I will tell you that almost 100% of the time when I talk to my clients, what they want is for their parents not to fight anymore over them yeah. and for there to be some peace. But I use the therapist as a resource. Yeah. You know, I think that when you said, if you think that the children in a contested custody case need therapy, I, mean, I can't imagine a situation when they wouldn't need therapy because it's such a stressful situation. Anyone would. Well, you would be surprised at how many parents who are in distress themselves are really unable and really I guess they're kind of wishful thinking that this isn't really hurting or upsetting the child or they've been able to protect the child. They want to protect the child. But the reality is that often when I talk to children in this situation, 
they really are in distress and they really do need some help. Yeah, it's a very distressful situation. I had a few years ago, I, I met a guy at a networking event and I talked to him about what I do and why I do it and that I really am on a mission to change how people divorce in New York in large part for kids sakes. You know, I think it's obviously better for grownups too, but they chose the situation. They have a little more control over it. Children do not. He told me a really a heartbreaking story of his own life as the child of divorce, that he felt that his parents' divorce was the single most formative event in his life and had more impact on him even than going to college, graduating, getting married, and becoming a father himself, that he felt that this was such a deeply scarring and challenging situation for him that he says he would do anything to stop that from happening for other children because it was so hard for him. Yeah, I think it can be very hard for children, and it can be long-lasting, and that's why we try very hard to encourage parents not to actually go to trial to decide these matters, but eventually come to an agreement. And so one of my roles as the attorney for the child is, and I'm very upfront with the parents I speak to, is to settle this case. And you may have to settle it in a way that you're not 100% happy, and I will tell you, and every professional and every forensic will tell you, and everybody who does the kind of work we do, even the litigants' lawyers will tell you that 99.9% .9 of the time, trials are a disaster for families. Because if you can't talk to your spouse before the trial, after you say all the mean things you're going to hear, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to parent in a, in a civil way after a trial, and your child will know and feel all the tension and stress. And responsible, I would imagine, in some ways. Children kind of blame themselves, even when they're told, and they're told by their parents, this is not about you, and we still love you. They have almost magical thinking. They sometimes think it's their fault, and if they could be better, if they could be kinder, if they could be more responsible, or they get angry, and they get angry at people, and people don't understand why they're angry, but they're angry because they're really upset and frightened. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said that what your child clients often want is for the people to stop fighting, their parents to stop fighting and to, to settle. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't use those words, but that's what they mean. And so really, you say, hey, you know what, my client wants to settle, so I'm going to do my darndest to settle this case and push for that. And that's exactly what I do. I do everything I can working with parents, both crossing the aisle on both sides, trying very hard to come up with creative solutions addressing the issues that parents raise so that my clients don't have to experience what I think is the worst thing in their lives, which would be a trial. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A few years ago, I was having lunch at a restaurant and I ran into a guy who does a tremendous amount of forensic evaluations. And I said, you know, what one piece of advice would you give to parents who are divorcing about their kids in the divorce? And he said, stop fighting. He said that you know, parents often fight, and you know, as least as well as I do, that parents often fight about what they think is best for their kids. They mm -hmm. both want what's best. They disagree about what that is. And they feel like this is super important. Whatever the thing is, the touchstone is, it's super important. And he said, even if you agree and make a mistake, you know, a parenting mistake, that's better than fighting about it, right? Even if you know full on that you're totally right, that it's better, you know, to keep the marital residence and the kids in the home or, you know, what, even if that's right, it's better to not fight and do something different than it is to fight about it even when you're right. Oh, I think that's 100% true. I think that I've had children as young as five 
beg me for their parents to actually separate so that they could live in separate houses while the divorce is going on because the level of fighting and now taping and videoing and doing all kinds of technical things around the house has really heightened the anxiety for these children. And they really are like, please, I know they'll be better. Like, please get them to separate. <laughs> please get them to stop fighting. You yeah, know? that's heartbreaking. It is. A five-year-old says that to you. So this is Catherine Miller, I'm host of Dialogue on Divorce, talking with Don Cardi about the role of the attorney for the children in divorce cases. And Don, I know you use a lot of mediation skills in the work that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Well, about two years ago, I was trained in mediation, and I really, really was convinced that the kinds of skills that I learned were, in fact, probably the better or way to deal with divorce in general, but certainly in trying to deal with children. So the kinds of skills you learn in mediation is really a very different from litigation. So you're not an advocate, but you're really there to listen and hear both sides in this case, both parents' concerns, feelings, distress, almost universally they're on the same page that they want what's best for their child. But I use those skills of listening and trying to have the other parent hear what the other parent is saying, trying to show the other parent that maybe what you think is her wanting to control you is really her anxiety and fear for what's happening with the child, their child. At the same time, a parent can feel that a child is being overprogrammed or underprogrammed. There's all kinds of things that go on. So what I try to do is hear and listen and get both sides to listen to the other, sometimes even in the same room when I'm representing children, to try to figure out how is the best way we can do for the one person or persons you both agree on that you love more than anything, how can we come to an agreement? And so the skills I've learned in mediation are actually better skills than the skills I learned for litigation. In this role. In this role as yeah. representing children. And, and in fact, I often, almost in every case, am acting as a mediator when I represent children more than a, a litigator. It sounds like what you're trying to do is to sit with the people and they can agree. I mean, I think even parents who are furious at each other can agree that there probably aren't two people on the face of the earth who love that child more than they do, right? And they Correct. share that. I mean, they share this love for this child or children. And from that understanding, expand the understanding of each person's perspective and try to, I mean, in some ways, have them slide each other a little bit of a break, you know? Exactly. Um, I don't think parents give each other a break. I think that there's very high expectations. It's very stressful. And there's a level in which parents, you know, are very critical sometimes of each other's parenting when really all it is is very different parenting skills, very different ways they were parented and different ways they think. Neither one of them are necessarily right or wrong. If you present it to outsiders. They would, some people would agree with one kind of parenting or another kind of parenting. And what you try to do is to get them to respect that other person's parenting and not undermine it. I will say to your listeners that if you have children who are in those teen years or tween years, the worst thing that can happen for them is to have the parents undermining each other because that creates disaster as they go through their teens. Children in that age 
are somewhat manipulative. They can manipulate that and it can be to their detriment. Yeah. You know, I think that's really interesting. I think children of all ages, consciously or unconsciously, do somewhat manipulate the situation just because they're human beings, not because they're bad kids. They're great Mm -hmm. kids. It's a bad situation for them and they will manipulate us. You know, my own daughter will say, oh, you know, daddy said it was okay, you Mm -hmm. know, and daddy and I live together. I could just say, hey, you know, did you say it was okay for this extra piece of candy or this other thing? And, you know, it maybe not as much or maybe yes, but it doesn't really make that much difference. I think what you're saying is that children can really work the no system. Exactly. So I will have some children who will want to be at a particular parent's home because that particular parent has sometimes fewer rules. They may have a curfew or they may not have a curfew. They maybe have limitations on their computer or their internet access or their telephones or not. And they'll play the two parents off each other because the parent then wants to please the child when the child is with them. And so there becomes this really kind of very manipulative triangle that occurs. It can be simple when it is simple things like computers, but when it begins to become, you know, how late are they staying out? Who are they hanging out with? And they're playing the both parents against each other. Drug use is another example, access to money, access to a particular crowd. Then it can become extremely difficult and damaging to the child. Sounds like it's dangerous from your view. Absolutely. Very dangerous. I beg parents, please, let's get on the same page. Otherwise, you know, I say to them, listen, you know, you're going to be able to parent the way you want in your own house. But if you read the literature, the children who do best are the children whose parents can work collaboratively together and the children whose parents can be in general on the same page. And that's just reality. That they can have a, a shared parenting philosophy. Is that what you mean? Exactly. And try to keep some of the same rules and regulations in both. Or, for example, if a child does something wrong or is chastised by a parent in divorce and the child calls up the other parent and is crying and blaming and I'm angry, I'm angry at mommy, she did this, she said that to me. The other parent shouldn't say, oh, poor honey, you, yeah, she's really bad or he's really bad. What they really should do is to listen and to say, well, that's your mother. And while you're in your home, you have to be whatever it is, respectful of her, follow her rules. Do you see what I'm saying, Catherine? Yeah, I I do see what you're saying. And I also know that's really hard to do. It's very hard. Especially when you're in the middle of the divorce and you're really pissed off at mom or dad. You're really mad at the other person. It's super hard to suck that up, you know, and tell yourself, listen, shut up. You're not going to join with the person and condemning the other parent. Because it's not good for that kid. It really isn't good for the kid. As much as you want to do it and as much as you might think that other parent is whatever that other parent is in your estimation, it's really bad for the child. It's really not healthy for the child. And it can become a situation that gets dangerous. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it comes back to bite the parent who allows that to happen. I mean, in terms of their damaging the relationship with the child that they have. I think that's true. And I think over the long haul, when I've seen children have come back to me to talk to me about when I represented them and what they remember and what they think, it's interesting that you do hear children who who really have changed their opinion about their parents and the divorce as they've matured. Yeah, I think that that is so important to remember that when you're a parent of divorce. And I know that from personal experience, my own divorce and the difficult things that the kids 
would say were going on, you know, it's very hard not to be like, yeah, don't you see that? Or somehow allow them to pull you in to that, you know, whatever is going on for them. It's really hard. It's very hard. But I always say you have to be the adult and it's hard to be the adult. But, you know, whatever anxiety you have about what's going on, you should direct it, you know, more towards, you know, a child's therapist or your own parent coordinator. If you have a parent coordinator or... Let's just stop right there and let's talk about what parent coordination is because I think that could be really useful information for people as well. So often after clients have agreed to terms and part of the terms are that there's a parent coordinator in place for times when they are having disagreements about the terms of the stipulation that they've agreed to and parenting issues. So sometimes it happens post-settlement, post-judgment, and sometimes it happens as the case is progressing that we try to get a parent coordinator in place to try to help parents with parenting issues. So they're not therapists bringing them back together. They're just helping them with parenting issues. And they typically are psychologists, social workers, therapists who have been trained to be parent coordinators who are there trying to help the parents come to what is the best decision, what is in the best interest of the child, not what one parent wants, not what another parent wants, but what's in the best interest and help people learn how to parent after divorce. And they're so very post, good about that. Post-divorce co-parenting training. Exactly. I don't even say therapy because it, it's... No, it's, it's not therapy. It is really training. So as simple as how do you write an email to your ex-spouse? What's the tone of that email? Is that going to be the most productive way to accomplish what you want? You may think those things in your head, you may feel them, but it's probably not going to be the best way to accomplish what you want with the other parent in regard to your child. I mean, parent coordinators train people to do little things like that. They also challenge their opinions and they will say, well, in this particular situation, you know, do you really think that that was what's best? Or say, I really don't think that was what's best for Johnny or Susie or whomever. So they have opinions. So they try to educate parents and help them become better parents and also follow the rules of the stipulation. And as I understand it, sometimes they're empowered to make decisions if the parties cannot come to an agreement. Well, in New York City, where I practice, a number of judges will not let a parent coordinator make the decision alone. The parent coordinator can make a decision, but the parents can still challenge the decision in court. Some agreements say that if one parent agrees with the parent coordinator, then that will be the final decision. So it's a little nuanced. It's a little bit different than saying that the parent coordinator makes the decision. That sounds pretty tricky. It is. It, it does. Is. It really does sound. So Dawn, if people have questions about attorneys for the children or would like to reach you in any way, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I have a website. It's uh, www.cardiedgarlaw.com. Let's just say Cardi is C-A-R-D-I. They can Google me, Dawn Cardi. They can call my office, 212-481-7770. And also on my card, my cell is 917-543- Nine 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 three. So you can text me, email me, call me, visit me. That's great. So I stopped you to talk about the parenting coordination because you were on your way to talking about sort of ways in which the different professionals work. Quickly, while we're ending, is there any 
anything else that you think people should know about the interaction between the professionals around children and divorce? Well, I think that the parents um, should be proactive in getting their children help if they need help. I think it's really important that the parent try to work with the attorney for the child. You don't have to like the attorney for the child necessarily. You don't have to agree with him or her, but it's important to work with them and give them the kind of information you think is important about that attorney understanding their child. They know their child and they can be extremely helpful in helping me learn and know their child. Thank you very much, Don Cardi. It's been a pleasure having you this week. Well, I've enjoyed it too. Thank you.